0: Hello, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I have a a quick like business update before we get into the scriptures together. Um, In our bulletin, this paper program that's passed out to you, we have giving information on the back. Um, It's really important to us uh, that we be financially transparent and make you aware of our financial needs, but it's also really important to, to us that we not twist arms into giving. real common thing in churches today, and really across uh, the city specifically, is to kind of manipulate people into giving by saying, you know, you'll, you'll get more blessings, you'll get kind of more automatic stuff raining down from heaven if you give enough. And what we want to say is, you know what, we want you to give financially, if you feel like you have received from Jesus. And if you're excited about what you've received from Jesus, then we want you to give financially. To help us spread that, so that's really where that should come from. So if you're a visitor, don't give us anything, please. Um, unless you're like a billionaire, then maybe you could throw us something. But generally, if you're a visitor, right? Like, don't give. This is for people that are a- about what we're doing, and you're saying, "Yeah, I'm excited about what's happening here." So we encourage you to give financially. Um, we're going to talk in the sermon about how Jesus emptied Himself, and it's pretty cool because uh, we're a little low financially because this year we took a huge risk missionally speaking, and we planted a church. And what we did was we sent out a ton of people and their money and their talents and gifts, right? So we are low financially right now. So just want to make you aware of that. We print that information in the back. Um, We've got savings and, you know, we take kind of precautionary steps so that we don't go in, you know, go into huge debt or anything. So it's not like the church is about to burn down, but we are low from from what we planned. We haven't brought in everything we planned to bring in. So if you're able to give more, please give. Uh, and we would just ask you to pray about ways that you could participate as well. Maybe you don't have money to give, but maybe you could step up and serve more or get more involved in what we're doing. We'd love to get you more involved. Um, so that's giving. I've got a little statement in the bulletin as well, this little insert where we talk about that in more detail. So I encourage you to read that afterwards. So now we're going to spend some time in the Scriptures. This is central to who we are. Uh, we're Grace Bible Church, so each week we're going to open the Bible. So I encourage you to grab your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Philippians you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles under the chairs um, just so that we can get you in the habit of opening them up. So grab that black Bible and open it up to page 980. Page 980, it's the short New Testament letter of Philippians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Um, and it's going to help us focus on love this week. As we practice uh, Advent, as we celebrate Christmas in Colleen. we look at different themes each week. Uh, The first week was hope, and we looked at the longing and the expectation that the Israelites had as they were waiting for their Savior to come. This week, we're going to look at love. What does it look like for us to manifest Christ's love in Colleen? So we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 13, love in Colleen. We're focusing on kind of the localness of it. Is localness a word? Locality? I don't know. I I should think about these things before I start speaking. Um, We have this promise again and again in scripture that says, God is going to be among us. And that is most clearly seen in the birth of Jesus. He takes on flesh. So this is a famous passage in Philippians 2, It says, Jesus came and took on flesh. He humbled himself to be a baby. He became a baby for us. Not only did he die on the cross for us, yes, but he lived a human life. He dealt with all the junk that we have to deal with growing up in this crazy, broken world. And so this is a great time to meditate on that because that was done out of love and that drives us to love others. I want to share a story with you how I struggled with love at one point when I was a new youth minister, Uh, I was working with junior high age students uh, and I was coming in to work for the church uh, to lead the youth ministry with the junior high students in the mid-year. And so in the mid-year, I came in and I was working primarily with the eighth graders, the oldest kids in the junior high program. And those eighth graders just happened kind of how it fell out. This is a church I had Uh, become a believer at in my teen year. So I'd come back after college and getting married and came back to work with them. Uh, And so now I'm this older kid that they all kind of know because I know their families, right? So there was this closeness. Like we already loved each other. They all thought I was cool. I was like this cool older guy that they respected. I know it's hard for you to believe. Like what? Cool? Yeah. At one point I was cool and these kids looked up to me and I just loved it. It was like this honeymoon period. My first semester came in mid year, came in in January, was working with these kids. It was so great. And then those kids left the program and moved into the high school group. I was just working with the junior high group. So those kids that thought I was awesome moved on. A new crop moves up of eighth graders. And this new crop, I don't know very well. And I don't really have as much in common with them. And they don't really think I'm that cool. Again, you're like, what? And <laughs> These kids all lived in different towns and went to different schools, so they didn't really like each other very much either. You know, it was just this weird, hard, difficult group, and I had certain duties, right? Like, I had to lead the Sunday school program and recruit volunteers and, you know, lead retreats and all that, and I kind of did my duties, but I felt myself drifting, right? Like, I felt myself distancing from them because I always felt like they thought I was stupid, I always felt like they didn't really like me. And so I I use this illustration to help you to see that sometimes it's really hard for us to love people when we're worried about ourselves, right? When I was around them, I felt not cool. When I was around them, I felt stupid. When I was around them, I didn't feel strong and capable, and so that made me not want to be around them. But something happened as... God's grace would have it. I was I was in the word. I was growing in my faith in Jesus. I was already committed to ministry, committed to Christ, growing in him. And I just was challenged by, you know what? Jesus loves me. God loves me and Jesus came into my world when I didn't love him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Romans tells us. That Jesus didn't wait for us to think he was awesome. We were rebels. We were rebels that were turned from God and Jesus entered into our world while we were rebels, while we were turned away from him, and he came into our world to pursue us. That's, that's the Christmas story. That's the Christian story, that Jesus came pursuing us. And the more I meditated on that reality, the more I just became sure, you know what? Jesus came for me, so I should go for them. I should pursue them in love. I should, I should try to encourage them. I should try to befriend them. I should try to love these kids. And my affections didn't immediately change, but the more I became aware of Christ's affection for me, the more determined I became that I should serve them in love. The more determined I became that I should actually take steps to, to try to befriend them, even though I didn't feel like it. And this is really important because in our culture, we confuse the actions of love with the feelings of love. All the movies that we see, they're romantic, and they, they make it like love is something that you, you fall into, right? Right? Like love is this weird cosmic connection that just accidentally happens to us, but in the Bible, love is a choice. In the Bible, love is something you do, and we pray that the affections and the feelings will follow, right? Like we want that to be fully human. We, we want to have affections that kind of go with our actions, but, but ultimately, love is something you do. Uh, We're going to see a model of it in Philippians 2. I'm going to read this. A parallel is in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And it says, Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he uh, had come from, and he knew where he was going, right? He was sure of the love the Father had for him. So what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. It doesn't say, Jesus knew that the Father loved him, so what did he do? He had these ushy-gushy feelings toward the disciples, He fell in love with it. Like, that's not what it says, right? It says he took action. And so we see this in this parallel in Philippians 2. So we'll read Philippians 2 together, verses 1 through 13. Lost my place here. Okay. That's what the ribbons are for. Help me cheat. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I hope you see that he started the section in chapter two with, "If you've got any comfort from the love of Christ, then he ends it with, "Beloved, you're the loved ones, right? Now obey. He starts with love, He ends with love. He's saying, "We love," as it says in First John 4:19, "cause he first loved us. And love is not a feeling love is an action. We pray for feelings. Affection is great. We want that, but we take action because Jesus took action towards us. Let me pray for us and, and ask for God's help because this, this is a universal problem, right? Humans are uniquely broken in this area. It's hard for us to love others. We want to just love ourselves. So let me pray that the Holy Spirit would help us and teach us. God, we pray for your help. We pray for your grace. God, meet us where we are. Lord, you know the unique places where we are most afraid and most hurt when it comes to love. And we pray that your spirit would comfort us, number one. We pray that the spirit would fill us so that we would be more sure of your love for us. And then we pray that your spirit would empower us, that we would live out the love that you've given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at Philippians 2 and we think through this kind of Christmas theme, this Advent theme of love. What I want us to be doing is kind of looking at the model that is laid out in Philippians 2, and then I'm going to make reference to the Christmas story and say there are a lot of elements of the Christmas story from like Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2, the beginning birth narratives of the birth of Christ that will remind us or illustrate some of these things that we see lived out in Christ's life. Uh, So starting out in the first section, we're going to see that love unifies people, love unifies. And then the second thing we're going to see is that love empties. Love empties. That's a giving up of yourself like we see in Christ's life. And then finally, love shocks. It, it shocks. It's kind of startling. It, it makes a big change. It sends out shock waves. Love shocks. So love unifies, love empties, and love shocks. First of all, we want to look at this idea that love unifies in the first few verses. And it's really important to us that we recognize the the movement, um, because religion gets this entirely backwards, okay? And so what we would say is we would say there's kind of religion, human beings trying to climb the ladder to God, and then there's Christianity, which is Jesus coming down to human beings. And it's very different, and we can mix it up. Because on the outside, it looks the same, right? Religion and Christianity both share in common people doing good things, right? So sometimes on the external surface, it looks like the same thing. People trying to be nice, trying to do good things. And so in that sense, there's a kind of a universality to all religions. But Christianity is very different where it says this verse one part is super important, okay? It's going to be an if-then condition. Look at this in verse one. He says, so if there... So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. So we're saying, if you're comforted at all by Jesus dying for you, loving you, forgiving you of your sins, then do this thing, right? And so it's really important. We see this pattern again and again, the entire book of Ephesians The entire structure of that letter to the Ephesian church is structured around this. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians is, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. you. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6 is, okay, now love each other. Like, work it out, okay? And that's what he's saying here. Man, if there's any comfort from God loving you, get along with each other. Now, it's helpful to understand the context of the Philippian church. Philippi was a Roman colony, Um, And so what this means is there are a lot of retired military officers that lived there. So in a lot of ways, it's maybe similar to Killeen, Texas, right? So Philippi is this colony with a lot of strong, independent people. They're smart, they're hardworking. And so Paul comes in, in this letter to Philippi, and he's like, man, way to go. Thanks for partnering with me in the gospel. Thanks for being strong and tough and hardworking. But hey, you know what? we could work a little bit on the humility and love thing. Okay. And so that theme is kind of woven throughout of like, you're doing great things, you're conscientious, but, but do you understand humility? Do you understand joy? Do you understand love? And that's what he's pressing into here. Often when we're strong, independent people, it makes it hard for us to get along with others, right? Because we're right and they're wrong. Right, like so. Just how can you get along with people when they're stupid and wrong? It's just hard to do. Paul is saying here, but you know what? You were stupid and wrong, and Jesus loved you. So that's going to help you work that out in your social situations with other people. That's going to help you to be patient and humble and loving and be unified with them. So again, verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's like, okay, if Jesus has loved you and you're feeling that, then love each other. Same, 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 same. Right? Unify. Unify is a good kind of cover for that. That's why I picked that word. It kind of summarizes all this. You're getting along with other people. You're loving them the way that Christ. Loved you. This is a pattern he's explaining here, and then he's going to go a little deeper. He's like, "All right, this is what it's going to look like. This is where it's going to challenge you. This is where it's going to sting." Verse three: Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry is like when you're like pushing the other person out of the way so you can be first, right? So, like, if you're running a race, great. But otherwise, don't push people out of the. Even in a race, I guess you're not supposed to push people out of the way, right? I guess I'm just saying, like, run as fast as you can when you're running a race, but. There's this thing we do socially where we want to prove other people wrong to establish our own position. And there's this ancient King James word, vainglory. It's like this idea of, of like you're your glorying in your emptiness. It's like the idea of like puffed upness. You, you don't really have a security and so you try to build a security for yourself by pushing other people down. That's what Paul is attacking here. You don't establish yourself by like nudging out the people next to you you establish yourself by receiving the grace that God has for you in Christ. When you've really received that, when you've really been comforted by his love, when you really recognize that he forgave you, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, then that frees you up to say, oh, now when I interact with other people, I don't have to push them out of the way. I can actually lift them up. I can act out what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. I can know who I am and serve others. So he says, don't do anything out of rivalry, or conceit. But he goes on and says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Both uh, C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller have written a lot on this subject. But one of the ways to think about humility is not that you think less of yourself, but you think about yourself less, right? That's one way to think about it. It's not like, I'm stupid, I'm bad. That's not really Christian humility. Christian humility is, I'm not even worried about me anymore, right? (laughs) I know I'm loved and I'm focused on the other person. And so that's the direction he's taking us in here. Then verse four, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so he gets a little common sense here. He's like, yeah, you got to look to your own interests, right? Like you got to eat or you'll die. You got to take care of yourself, but don't just look to your own interests. Look to others. Look out, look around you, say, Jesus took care of me, so I'm going to take care of other people. And there's common sense allowances in Christianity for living your own life, doing your own thing, eating, drinking. You know, you live your life, but you're always looking out to, how can I serve and love others around me? So look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. As we live this out, it it then reflects a supernatural unity which makes the love of Jesus more clear to other people. It has a multiplying effect. As we are unified, uh, Jesus goes into details about this in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, before he goes to the cross, he's praying. He's kind of preaching to his disciples, their, their kind of final moments with him, and he's praying to the Father and letting them listen into his prayers. Um, preachers have a bad habit of doing that, right? We preach while we're praying. So there's this kind of interesting mix there of what's going on in John 17, and he's praying to the Father that the Father would make them unified. And then he explains, it's a long section, he explains that as his people are unified, and we're more about him than about us, then more people will see the love of God. There's like this supernatural ripple effect, right? So, so already our, our congregation and, and the worldwide church, but let's just talk about our congregation, is a unified group of people who come from different socioeconomic classes. We come from different races. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different traditions. Some of you grew up in really strict Christian traditions. Some of you grew up like wild and crazy pagans, right? Like we all come from different backgrounds and we come unified saying, you know what brings us together is Jesus, and what Paul is saying here, and what Jesus is explaining in John 17, is as we're actually unified, more people will see Jesus, right? Because as we collect around our tribe, if I just hung out with people that were like me, what I'm doing is I'm elevating what I think is important. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to have secondary identities or hobbies, right? Like, it's cool. You like to mountain bike? Go mountain bike with people, right? That's, that's fine. But there's a sense in which socially we start to elevate the things we love, and start to say, those are the most important things about me, right? And in our kind of chaotic society right now, we're going to be lured to that more and more. I don't know if you've noticed this and just the way people relate, but more and more we're kind of fracturing into tribalism. Like, I'm about this. Oh, well, I'm about this, right? Right? and we have this tendency on social media to want to brag about the things we're about. Well, I'm one of these people that's about this, and I belong to this little tiny sect, and we're better than all the rest of you because we do this thing. We read these books. We, we take this kind of diet, or we exercise, in the, you know, and we, we're tribalizing, and Paul here in Philippians, Jesus in John 17 is saying, no, be about Jesus. Be unified around him. Recognize that the universal human problem is not that we're on the wrong diet, right? I mean, just to be clear, it matters what we eat, right? I care about those things, but, but that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is we're separated from God because of our sin and selfishness. And Jesus has come to solve that problem. And then he says, follow me and make me your primary identity. And then it's still cool to have our secondary identity, right? Like I, I still hold on to traditions from my childhood. I still enjoy certain things that other people don't enjoy, we just gotta not elevate those other over our unity in Christ. Does that make sense? So there's always gonna be a tension in the church. The, the church will always be people struggling to get along. And that's a good, healthy tension. And here he's saying, look at Jesus and how he entered our world, and that's the model for how we're gonna unify with each other. And then John 17 he says, and as we do that, man, more people are gonna see Jesus. More people are gonna be like, whoa, look at that group of people they're all from different backgrounds and that they love each other and they love Jesus. There's, there's something there. God is doing something new. It's no longer tribalism, but it's a, it's a supernatural unity. So again, verse one drives this and the behavior flows out in verses two, three, and four. Um, a great example of this is how the book of Luke really traces this of all the gospels, traces how God cares for the lowly and the outsider. It's a major theme in the book of Luke. So the Christmas stories in the book of Luke kind of show us this because if you've uh, read the different Christmas stories, most of our kind of Christmas birth narratives come from Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2. Well, in Luke chapter 2, we've got the angels announcing the birth of Jesus to shepherds. And the shepherds were seen as as outsiders and, and kind of gross. I have a picture here of some sheep in the mountains. I had a friend um, that did work with people... Uh We'll say Central Asia. I'm trying to, I don't think it's okay to say where he was. But anyway, he did work with this shepherding people and he had a deep desire to see these shepherding people come to know Jesus. He loved them and he spent time with them. They were nomads though in the mountains. And so it was hard for him to really connect with them on a daily basis. So he lived in the city nearby where a lot of them uh, shepherded their sheep in the mountains. And he would try to always go and connect with them. Uh, and he, he moved to this part of the world with this passion to reach this unloved people with the love of Christ. And so he was trying to demonstrate this kind of unity and this kind of uh, showing other people to be more important than ourselves, this kind of humility, Um, but he struggled to reach them. And you know what started to happen? Is over time, as he lived in the city nearby, the city people started to come to know and love Jesus. And it was this really funny dynamic because these city people began to know and love Jesus and thought he was a freak for hanging out with these dirty shepherds. But you know what happened? As they began to know and love Jesus, they started to understand everything that Paul is explaining here. They began to know, oh, we were were outsiders and Jesus brought us into his family. And they began to grow this love for the shepherd people that my friend loves. So my friend moved there with a passion to reach the shepherd people for Christ. And what ended up happening is he accidentally reached the city people. And then you know what happened? The city people started to go reach the shepherd people for Christ. And so he went with this mission and he was just like one generation off, but still seeing that dream fulfilled because the city people began to have a love and be unified now with the country people or the lowly people that were shepherds up in the mountains. Well, we see this exhibited in Luke. Luke is like, hey, you know what? One of the first people that were told about the birth of Jesus were shepherds. Were these dirty, lowly shepherds, these outsiders. And Luke keeps coming back to this theme throughout his whole gospel Jesus always loved and cared for the outsiders. And we should too. We should be unified. And so again, we have to ask ourselves what are the ways in which we want to be proud, like the Philippians, and say, I'm right, you're wrong? And what are areas in our life where we have to say, you know what, maybe I need to set aside my preference on this issue? and come one step closer to serve another person in love? How could I practically serve them and love them? Again, a great model is is looking to John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's not Jesus knew who he was, so then he had ishigishi feelings toward the disciples. It's Jesus knew who he was, so then he reached out and he served them. What are practical steps you could take to serve someone around you who you may not feel those warm feelings towards, but you could do something you could take a next step to serve them and demonstrate love for them. Okay, next point, love empties. Love empties, and this is a technical section. Um, the word empty in Greek is kenosis. And so I just throw that out there for those of you that want to do further study. It's a kind of difficult concept theologically. So as Christians, historically, we would say that God is, uh, or that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% Man, And so we're kind of getting into some of the nitty-gritty here of how this plays out, and what we want to do is we want to say, man, this can blow our mind, and just admit that, like not kind of pretend like, oh, we're Christians, so we just kind of understand all this stuff. It's, it's hard to understand, right? Um, but Christmas is a sweet and wonderful time where we can meditate on some of the specifics, like Jesus was born as a human baby, And that's mind-blowing. Well, let's meditate on that and see if we can learn some things from it. So here in Philippians 2, verse 5, we'll pick up this theme of love empties. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean? Uh, grasped, just want to kind of undercut one of the common ways we think of grasped is like understanding. I don't think he means it in that sense. He means it physically like snatching, okay? Uh, Ancient translations like King James would say robbery because this word in Greek has this connotation of snatching something. And so what it's saying is Jesus didn't see his full divinity, his equality with God, his hanging out in heaven from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect unity, perfect divinity. He didn't see that as something to be snatched, right? Held onto. Think of the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Anyone seen Lord of the Rings? Okay. The nerds in the audience. Okay. Uh, And Gollum is this, he's this character that like loves this magical ring and he can't let go of it. And you just see it contorting him and twisting him. And he's like, he calls it his precious and it's really weird and creepy. Um, That's a good image of grasping, right? So Jesus was fully God but he didn't like hang on to that godness. There was an openness he had to sacrifice himself. And part of the sacrifice was not just the, the very obvious sacrifice of dying on a cross for our sins. That's central, important. We talk about that all the time. But there's also the sacrifice of living a human life. So that Hebrews 4.15 can say, we have a high priest that's, that's not unable to sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way yet without sin, He knows what it's like to live like you and me and to stumble and uh, scrape your knee and be hurt and be abused. And he knows what that is like. And so this is part of him emptying himself. He gets in the specifics here. He didn't see it as something to be grasped or snatched onto, verse seven, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So um, this is an interesting little change in translations. Uh, Some translations of the ESV say, but emptied himself, and some say made himself nothing. I just caught that. I didn't even catch that in the first service, because I've got one version of the ESV printed in my notes and one version that I'm reading from. So that's that Greek word kenosis. He emptied himself, or the other translation says, made himself nothing. And so again, that can blow our minds. It doesn't mean like he became a non entity, right? It just means he wasn't kind of greedily holding on to his godness. He was willing. This is the way one of the books I've read uh, worded it, which I thought was really helpful. He was content. You hear know that word? He was content to live within human limitations. So, a big question for you and me is Am I content to live in humble dependence on my Heavenly Father, living within my human limitations? That's that's hard for me because I want to be everywhere and do everything and solve every problem. I want to be all powerful. I want to be omnipresent. And yet we see a Jesus who is content to live within his human limitations. And so we want to apprentice ourselves to him and look at how he lived in this way. So verse eight unpacks this a little more. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So two pieces here that we want to point out. Um, Not only was part of his humbling and his emptying, dying on a cross for our sins, but it was also living a human life. And that's really important. And Protestants historically have said, both of these things are really important to our salvation. Not only did he become a sacrifice for us, right? Because of my sin, I'm separated from God and I deserve spiritual death But Jesus took that on himself. That's the the story of the cross. The cross is central to our understanding. The cross is where Jesus died and vicariously took our place. But there's this whole other thing that's really amazing that Jesus lived for us. Jesus was the full, perfect human that we were supposed to be. So Romans 5 uh, references this. There was the first Adam, our first tribal chief. And we lived in that tribe and it just brought us death, right? We just keep re- replaying the sins of Adam. We keep saying, yeah, I'd rather have your stuff, God, but I don't want you. We keep replaying that sin in the garden. But then we have this, this opportunity by faith to be connected to a new tribal chief. And that is Jesus. And he's the perfect Adam. He's the perfect human. He's, he's what we are supposed to be. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved other people. He always made the right decision. He stopped and had empathy with people that we would not have had empathy for. And he challenged people that we would have been scared to challenge. And he lives out that perfect, balanced humanity. And so not only by faith are your sins forgiven because Jesus dies on the cross for your sins, but also by faith, the perfect humanity of Christ is transferred to our account. If, if you trust in Jesus, God sees you in Christ. He sees you as this perfect son or daughter. He delights in you. He loves you. He's pleased with you. And that's mind boggling. He was obedient. He lived. He served. He loved the way we're supposed to. So if you trust God, he sees you through that lens. He sees you hidden in Christ. And so we see a big part of this is not just that he was willing to die for us, but he was willing to live for us. He was willing to take on human limitations. And one of them that's a really fun one to meditate on at Christmas time is Jesus became a baby, right? Isn't that mind-blowing? Jesus, I see some babies here. Babies are tiny. Babies need a lot of help. Babies live in utter dependence on mom and dad and other human beings. This one little idea that's really interesting is in Luke chapter 2, it says they wrapped him in swaddling clothing. Do you know what that means? Or swaddling cloths? When a baby's first born, how many of you have had a baby? Okay, a bunch of people have had a baby. For those of you that haven't had a baby, you might have seen this. When a baby's first born, they wrap him up really tight in the blankets. Have you all ever noticed that? And why is that? Why would you do that to a baby? Well, that baby's been like packed in for nine months, right? Right? And so he's born out into the air and the light, and he's freaking out, and you've got to wrap him up. Give him a little security, right? Jesus was swaddled. Like, let that blow your mind for a minute. I grabbed a picture here. There's this newfangled swaddling thing. I don't know if I believe in this. It's like a zip bag. You put a baby in. I don't know about that. I don't really get that one. We would wrap him up in a blanket. It was like a stretchy blanket. It was like a burrito, and you just tight tight and then tuck it in the top, right? And that baby felt secure. Yeah, that's what you do. So I don't know, I don't know if I can endorse the zipper bag, but a newborn baby has got to be wrapped up tight because he's just, he's just left this world of perfect protected security. And now he's in this world of utter chaos and the baby's got to be cared for and loved and cuddled. And, and Jesus went through that right? And there's so many other places our mind can go that sometimes are not helpful, right? But let's just think of ways that we can live this out. So Jesus emptied himself. I think a real practical model is John 13, where it says he knew who he was. He had confidence in being loved by the Father. So what did he do? He very practically served the people around him. He washed their feet. He did the lowliest of jobs. If you're full of the love that God has for you, you have no problem doing a lowly job, right? Because you don't get your identity from the job. You don't get your identity from how you serve people. When you empty yourself of your preferences, when you defer to how other people want to do things, that's okay, you have freedom to do that because you're not receiving your identity from conforming or serving or deferring or helping them. You maintain your identity as a beloved child of God. And so when we get that straight, that enables us to empty ourselves of our priorities, our secondary identities, right? And so the New Testament has a lot to say about this, that there are these primary things, right? Like obey God, do what's right, follow his pattern of morality, obey the 10 commandments, know that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They're like central things that we should fight about because they're important. And then there are all these other things that are not that big of a deal, and we can just say, I'm going to defer. I'm going to serve you in love. Yeah, it's not my preference to do it that way, but I'll, I'll serve you and defer in this way. And that's part of what it looks like to empty ourselves of our priority. So questions for us this holiday season are, number one, are there people that God's put in our path that God wants you to serve? Just be thinking about that, be praying about that. Say, God, Holy Spirit, show me there's someone in my path that I'm refusing to serve, right? Because they're beneath me. They don't deserve it. And maybe God's saying, no, take a step to serve them because it's not about them deserving it. It's about I've served you first and so now you serve others. And again, we've got, we've got to be careful because some of us, are, our minds go like, oh, so I've got to serve everybody all the time. I never have a priority. I never get anything done, right? Remember what he said before. He said, look, not only to your own interests, it's okay to look to your interests. That's fine. But also look to the interests of others. So ask yourself, who are the people around me that I'm to empty myself of my priorities, my prerogatives, my preferences. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a preacher, so I just keep using the same first letter. I can't help it. I can't stop myself. So this next section is love shocks. Love shocks. Uh, The idea here is that love is shocking to us. It's always surprising when we're deeply and truly loved by God, and then love is shocking to others, right? It's going to have a ripple effect. There are going to be shock waves that move out and impact The world. And so let's look at verses 9 through 13. In verse 9, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So through Jesus's perfect obedience, he's confirmed as the king of the universe. He's exalted by the resurrection. He's lifted up on high. He's praised as God. It's going to go on here and use some technical language. He's going to say, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are references to the Old Testament that's saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. So now we're back to the divinity thing, right? I think we're in a certain kind of time in history where most Christians just focus on the divinity of Christ. So it's really good for us to slow down and go, but Jesus was a human. He was a person. He dealt with those limitations, but also he is God. And Paul is confirming that again here. He's 100% God, 100% man. And that's what the ancients have always taught. And that's what Paul is teaching here. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Therefore, now he's going to say, now that's going to look like something in your life. This is shocking. He's praised as God himself. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So we'll stop there for just a second, right? We have a tendency to obey when people are watching us, right? Like I have a tendency to go, oh, someone from my church might see me. I have to be extra nice, right? You're saying that's not really the way you're supposed to obey. You're supposed to obey because the shockwaves of who God is are like wrecking your life and you can't do anything but, but be completely devoted to him. You don't really care what other people see. You just care about God. You're just entranced that this God of the universe is the only one. He is the king. And that overwhelms us. So he says, not just in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Have a sense of awe. Have a sense of holy fear. And he goes on in verse 13, in in, in case... We're confused by that in case we take fear and trembling like, oh, I'm supposed to be like an abject fear trembling like God doesn't like me, that kind of fear? No, no. He goes on in verse 13. says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God delights in you. He's pleased with you. And that should blow your mind that should cause shockwaves of fear and trembling to roll through you. And you should want to do what he says because he's so impressive and he's so amazing. The the shock is illustrated in another Christmas story. Um, I already kind of started to talk about this where the angels first announced the birth of Jesus. They announced it to the shepherds, right? We talked about that. The flip side of this is who are the angels? The angels are like scary aliens, right? Well, I don't want to get off on that tangent, but they're like bizarre looking creatures. Throughout scripture, sometimes angels appear as humans, but often they're like these really bizarre creatures, like these flaming things with wings that cover their face and their bodies that they fly with and cover their feet. And they're described in a lot of different ways in different places. I found an artist's rendering of the angels in Ezekiel. Anybody read the the book of Ezekiel? Yeah, it's scary, right? That that book will, will mess you up. And it gives this this vision of these angels, and they've got, like, eyes on their wings, and they've got monster heads, you know, and there's, like, these glowing wheels. It's crazy, right? And so that makes sense. In other places, they're called uh, flames of fire. It's two Hebrew words. There's cherubim and seraphim, and we think cherubim means, like, little fat cupids, right? That's not really what it means. I don't know where the Renaissance went with that, but, but this is a cherubim, right? Glowing monster face thing with wings. That's a cherubim. Seraphim literally means like flaming fire, flaming serpent. Like we've kind of got some dragon uh, orientation there as well. So they're like these terrifying creatures that guard the throne of God and praise him all the time and communicate with humans. And so that's who announced uh, the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They were praising God in heaven. It was just like, they were terrified. Every time an angel shows up, What does it say about the people that talk to the angel? It's usually like they faint or they're terrified and the angel's like, it's okay, it's okay. Stop freaking out, right? Like, I've got good news for you. And so we see the shocking reality of God is just overwhelming. God blows our mind. And as our mind is properly blown by God, right? As we are properly shocked by his love for us, as we get a, a true vision of the exalted Christ, that's going to then send shockwaves of obedience through our life. We're going to actually want to do what he says, right? Nowhere in this passage does it say, go do what God says and then maybe he'll love you. That's what religion says. Religion says, do the right thing and maybe if you're lucky, God will bless you. Here it says, be overwhelmed by God. Be amazed at his love for you. Be shocked, be freaked out that the holy God of the universe would would come into your presence. And because of that, now go obey. Now follow him. Because now now you trust him. He's changed your heart. He's changed your mind. He's blown up everything that you knew before. One of my favorite illustrations of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets a vision of Yahweh. He gets a vision of the Lord. And what does he do when he sees God? He just melts. He says, I am undone woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm a part of a people of unclean, he's like, I'm a sinner. And a proper response to a vision of God's perfect holiness, the exalted kingship of Jesus is I am undeserving. But the, the immediate next step is, but I bring you good news, right? The gospel is God has made the way to you. So one of my favorite visions of this in John Lynch's book, The Cure is that we often think about, I'm here, my sin's there, and if I can just work through my sin, then I can get to God and everything will be cool. But the gospel says, I'm here, my sin is there, and Jesus has worked through my sin, and he's with me now. And he's like, all right, we'll work, we'll work on this together. I love you. I proved that by living a human life and loving others in a way you never could and dying on a cross to be the perfect sacrifice for your sins. So again, we, we love Not as an expression of romantic feelings towards the people around us, but we love because we were first loved by God. And so we're called to take steps of service again. John 13 is a great place to look to see what this looks like. Jesus says, I'm loved by the Father, so I'm going to serve those around me. And we should say the same thing. I'm loved by God. And that doesn't necessarily give me warm feelings towards all of you, but I'm going to try to serve you in love. I'm going to try to serve the next person that God puts in line and says, hey, Pay attention. the more we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, the more we follow him, the more we'll see him living this out so that he's not just the power for us to obey, but he's also a model. And we can look at him and say, this is what it looks like to be fully human. This is what it means to love others as God first loved us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that at Christmas time, we can slow down and just be amazed that you were one of us. But you know what it's like. God, we often think you cheated, but we see that you were content to live as a human Jesus. You were content to live in perfect dependence on your heavenly father. Not only are you the power for our obedience, but you're the model of what it looks like to love and to walk with God by faith. Help us to celebrate that love you have for us and then help us to love others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.